0: you have an airbnb your home might be worth more than you think find out how much at airbnb.com slash host
1: welcome back to the messy truth conversations on photography in this episode i'm chatting to the brilliant echo eshin echo is a writer and curator who is devoted to championing black culture His latest book, Africa State of Mind, published by Thames and Hudson, is an exploration on how contemporary photographers from the continent are exploring ideas of Africanness to reveal Africa to be a psychological space as much as a physical territory. Alongside his busy curation and publishing schedule, he is also the chair of the Fourth Plinth Commissioning Group, overseeing London's most significant public art programme and the former director of the ICA. Echo has long inspired me. His phenomenal career is grounded in a long-term commitment to the work. This state of ever-making, searching and confronting. He animates his ideas across multiple platforms, holding space for an ongoing dialogue in a world
0: that is constantly in flux. Britain in the 1970s is really a country that I'd say is at ease with its own bigotry. Britain in the 1970s is a place where there's racist comedy on TV, there's racist incidents on football terraces, I you know, go to school, there's kids scrawling National Front slogans on the desks. It's it's kind of a hostile place if you're a black person. But it's also the place. It's that kind of level of antagonism towards black people and brown people was part of the everyday nature of British society. And I think my response to that growing up was really to do a lot of reading and a lot of thinking and a lot of looking at stuff. I used to read comics a lot when I was a kid uh, used to listen to a lot of music um, I had an older brother and he was always buying the NME and so and then we started getting into the Face magazine and um, style culture so I used to listen to a lot of music I used to think about really the connections between music and fashion and style culture and It seemed to me that one of the ways to, in some ways, live in this quite oppressive society, I guess, from the 70s you you move into the 80s, which becomes a bit more open. So as a teenager in the 80s, one of the ways that it seemed to me to live was to really take seriously the idea that you could, to some extent, define yourself by how you looked in opposition to the ways that other people, that mainstream society, wanted to confine you. As a black person, it felt important to me to find ways to articulate myself through how I looked or through connection or affinity with how other black people were defining themselves, uh, visually, musically, Culturally, I had what felt like a pivotal moment to me. Um, When I was 17 or something like that, I was still living at home with my parents. I remember going to um, Brent Town Hall Library, which is a big library down the road. And I discovered this, this publication there, which was the proceedings from a conference seminar at the ICA in the 1980s about black film and British cinema, it was called. I think that's what it's called, black film, British cinema. And it had in their essays by really the key intellectual figures of that period, uh, Stuart Hall, Paul Gilroy, had a piece by the artist Isaac Julian. It had all these different, it had uh, basically a number of different essays that were thinking about uh, race and identity, but thinking about those in connection to popular culture, in connection, in this case, to cinema, but thinking more deeply about those as a way of understanding the black position in Britain at that time in the 1980s. And that publication is only about 40 pages long or something, but it was a revelation to me. It was a complete revelation to me because having, as i was saying, you know, having read the face and thought about these things in my own terms, discovering a theoretical basis, discovering a way that scholars and academics and cultural theorists were making sense of blackness and Britishness and identity. It was a revelation for me because it made me realise that you could take this stuff really seriously and you could also enjoy... The culture as well you could enjoy pop culture simultaneously we're thinking about it on a really uh, fundamental level in terms of its politics in terms of its uh, socio-cultural worth and that without exaggeration that changed my life to some extent because I realized that for myself as well to some extent or other I mean, I say this as someone who's 17 at the time. To some extent or another, I could understand the world in those terms and I could potentially articulate the world in those terms, in that I didn't have to surrender a love of culture, a love of star culture, a love of music, and so on, in order to take seriously and fathom out my own position or the position of other people of colour in the culture that we lived in and I think that I I still look back at that discovery I still look back at that that realization yeah it sounds like such a powerful moment for you wow I mean I mean sometimes I'd sort of interrogate well have I just you know it's almost easy to conjure these things in retrospect but Mm. I remember when I when I when I when I found that that publication I think it was a, it was in the um, it was in the reference section of the library, um, but I stole it from the library and took it home <laughs> and I had it with me for about 20 years or something. After that, I don't have a copy of it anymore, but I think it's been republished since because it turned out it wasn't only me that found it interesting <laughs> and significant <laughs> as a conference and as a publication. So, yeah, so I
1: love that you've always been somebody who kind of explores a lot of the ideas you've been talking about but across so many different media and platforms from obviously curation and writing and publishing but also you've done a lot of tv and broadcast and is it really vital for you to move between those spaces is that an important part of your practice?
0: I'm interested in how you can talk about the things that seem significant and I have a Uh, uh, perhaps a selfish mantra that to some extent I'd rather hear myself talk about those than hear someone else talk about them in ways that I don't necessarily agree with. So I feel it's important to try and communicate some of the ways that I see the world and share that with other people, because if I don't, the worry is that well, people don't get to see it that way. And it's not like I have all the answers or anything like that. But I'm just interested in making sure that some of the work that I see and some of the ideas that I come across and I'm interested in entertaining exist in the public sphere. Because otherwise, again, if we, you know, going back to this growing up in London where you know, Black people are entirely marginalized, Black people are entirely dismissed, and denigrated. I'd rather not live in that world. I'd rather live in the world where we have a voice. And having a voice seems to me a particularly important thing under those circumstances, because without that, you're silenced. Without that, someone speaks on your behalf. Without that, you are denigrated, denied, dehumanized, all sorts of things. So for me, there's a, an importance and there's an urgency in trying to have a stake and trying to have a say in the culture.
1: I'm curious what you're looking for when you're encountering an artist's work for the first time in terms of your research.
0: That's a good question. I mean, I mean two things. You know, I look at work aesthetically. Um, I look for work that is intriguing and fascinating and confounding i look for work i can't quite understand that i can't take in in one go and then that's the prompt to go looking further into that artist's work and into the world that they're trying to explore like Artworks shouldn't, from as far as I'm concerned, artworks shouldn't give you answers. They should invite questions. They should invite inquiry. They should destabilise. They should confound. And I look for artists who do that, who show me a way of seeing that I haven't necessarily encountered but before, who make connections in their work that I haven't made myself before. So I'm looking, I'm always looking for work that is stimulating, is provoking, is intriguing. It's all sorts of things. It's not settled or finished in a way. And beneath that, very often, that's work by artists of colour. That's what I'm drawn to, generally speaking, black artists, because I'm interested also in... Artists whose work explores the condition of blackness in the contemporary world, which seems to me a fascinating and strange and quite often disturbing condition. I mean, I talk about my own experiences growing up in London, but pretty much any black person who, let's say who lives in the West, I think all of us in one way or another are contending with 400 years of discrimination, oppression, uh, forced labour, dehumanisation, death, all sorts of things, anti-blackness. So the work of so many artists approaches this shared legacy, this shared lived experience in so many different ways and, I'm endlessly fascinated and energized by the work of different artists. To some extent their work is the thing that helps me to live, that helps me to navigate, you know, this strange world that we're in right yeah. now. And and that has you, you know, and this strange world that's evolved over in fact, yes, hundreds of years.
1: I'm curious about, as you are, looking for people who can kind of expand our state of mind, which I think is something that's so beautifully done in your new book, Africa State of Mind, because that's a real celebration of an emerging generation of photographers across the African content that are really exploring the psychological space as much as the geographical one and I'd love to hear a little bit about the genesis of that book because it's just I knew it was going to be great when I saw it but I couldn't believe how powerful it was once I'd actually immersed myself in it. Yeah I'd love to hear about the genesis of that book.
0: The book starts from a place which is really just about recognizing that for me the way that Africa has been articulated in the Western imaginary, falls into these tropes and stereotypes that really evolved in the mid-19th century. It comes out of this idea of Africa as a dark continent, Africa as a place outside history and so on. And that's, um, I think photography has played a particular role in the promulgation of that idea uh, really since the mid 19th century through and t- for at least 100 years after that point, photography uh, historically has been a weapon used against African people. It's been a tool used in the subjugation of African people. If you look at colonial imagery and imperial imagery, it's all about Africa as a place of underdevelopment. And so in this project, the, the book Africa State of Mind starts well, from a dual realisation, as you said, Jim, uh, which is about two things. One, that there is a, an emergent set of photographers from all parts of the continent whose work is extraordinary and rich and ambitious and powerfully imagistic. And two, Africa itself, as we might think about it, define it in popular terms, is an idea rather than a settled fact. And to investigate and explore what Africa looks like and feels like. You have to move away both from that colonial imagery, but also from an idea that there is a single version of Africanness that can be captured. And and quite often I have a bit of a beef with documentary photography, with ideas that uh, photographers can be in Africa and capture a sense of an authentic place and sets of authentic people. Again, it's a hangover from colonial era imagery. So I was really interested in how an emergent set of photographers are less interested, it seems to me, in creating singular, authentic, truthful, and are more interested in asserting their right as artists to imagine Africa on their terms, through their eyes. Africa, therefore, not as a physical space, but as a psychological space. Africa is mood, tone, feeling, idea, emotion, uh, memory, rather than something fixed, something singular. And when I started looking in more detail, you see artist after artist after artist that is not doing the same thing, but perhaps their work shares a sensibility, shares a sensibility of if we are artists who are based on the continent or even based, based abroad, then our take on Africa is about Africa as a zone of possibility, as a zone of imagination, rather than as a place that we already know.
1: Yeah, that's one of the things I really loved about the book, because I think there's this real tendency to kind of lump some of the work that's in the book into this category as as of art as activism mm. in kind of just like a labelled way. But what I thought was so fantastic about it is, while that is you know, perhaps one thread through the book, it's very much more about these individuated terms in, ter- in, in which these artists are operating and the ideas that they're exploring. And, and kind of through that, creating this collection of work which is about imagining and imagining a kind of yeah.
0: new context for the continent. You've got to avoid essentialism, you've got to avoid yes. an idea that somehow these people speak for Africa. In the end, they speak for themselves. And they speak of Africa. They speak of the Africa that they know. They speak of the African ver- or the, they speak of the versions of Africa and Africanness that they know or that they imagine. And those versions are legion and those versions are all individual to them. So my start point is to privilege each of the figures in the book as artists. And as far as I'm concerned, the, the role of the artist really is to make up their own rules is to conjure their own aesthetic, is to make the world in their own, in the image of their own imagination. And that's what I was so inspired by looking at the work in the book. You know, we can talk about a British photographer like Ruth Say or a Nigerian photographer like George Soddy or Kilo Anjaki Henda, who's an Angolan photographer, Eric Giamfi, who's from Ghana, Edson Chegas, who's Angolan again. So many different photographers. Each with absolutely their own take, each with absolutely their own way of seeing the world. Collectively, then, what do we get out of that? We get Africa as a mosaic. We get Africa as a composite. We get Africa as a multiple, not as a singular. That seems to me an interesting thing. For sure.
1: And I'm curious what criteria you set for yourself in terms of deciding who would be included.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, again, that so. I guess putting together the book was about a year or more it was more than a year and just of just looking and looking and looking. And there's so much stuff, you know, photography is, photography is a great medium. So uh, I can come across a photographer and the, the, the work looks fantastic and looks compelling. It's bright and attractive and so on. And very often find someone's work, be excited about it. Then I come back to it a couple of months later and realise it wasn't doing any more they're merely presenting a surface. They're merely presenting uh, a sensory impression. Nothing wrong with that. But for my take, inclusion in the book was really about photographers as artists who wanted to go further and wanted to go deeper. So I had a really simple test, which is that could I find something to write about this person? Could I find something to write about their work? So I had to you know, write a text for each photographer, whatever that was, 300 or 500 words. At a time, I looked at the work and thought about the work. And if I didn't have anything that I felt I had to say, or that I felt they were really interested in saying through their work, then they didn't make it in. I mean, tough crowd. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just you know. Otherwise, what am I doing? Because it's 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 not just about oh, here's some great work. It's really about well, what is the work saying? What is the, what mm. is the work exploring? What are we? looking at and grappling with when we deal with this work what are the layers involved in that and uh so i guess i saw my role as giving space to all the work but also trying to interrogate it to somewhat and if it doesn't stand up to interrogation then it's not a great look for anyone yeah i can't write something i'm not convinced it will really live and survive and and thrive. So let's take someone like Omar Victor Diop, who's a, a Malian photographer, who works in the tradition of the great Malian studio portraitists, uh, Malik Sidibe and, and Sadu Keita, but has his own, his own very distinct identity as a photographer. And the series in the book of his that I chose references history of European painting and the history of the black figure in European painting. He sets himself within these constructed self-portraits that look like old paintings, but he inserts himself as a contemporary figure within them. And the work is beguiling, it's compelling to look at, but it also makes really serious points about art, art history, about European history, about the role of, of black people in the Western imaginary you know, you could write a book about it. Others have written long essays about it. That's material that's worth looking at. That's material that's yeah. worth talking about. Of me, so I wanted to spend time with work that I felt really rewarded inquiry. And that's what I wanted to share with other people. I think
1: the work in the book around the kind of aesthetic possibilities of self-representation is really fascinating. And kind of that lineage looking at photographers like Samuel Fosso, but then looking at contemporaries like uh, Lena Iris Victor and Zanelli Moholy. I thought that was really fascinating as well. And there was so much scope within that chapter in terms of different people exploring their own interpretations of how that work can function. It was really fascinating.
0: Yeah, so I mean so what, I mean one of the other things is that yeah, African societies are I mean at the risk of generalizing very broadly some aspects of some African societies can be fairly and sometimes oppressively patriarchal. And so within some of those societies you are in a situation where there are strict gender codes strict notions of what it means to be a man or a woman. What's exciting to me is looking at how a number of different African photographers are critiquing those ideas of heteronormativity and deliberately expanding and challenging and offering other ways that we can look at and understand what it means and and how it looks and how African people can live and exist uh, within Africa. So most prominently, Zanele, she's one of the significant figures of our time in photography. So as far as I'm concerned, uh, I challenge anyone I agree. to agree with that. Of course, she you know she's she's amazing. She's completely amazing. Uh, so Zanele has been uh, photographing queer peoples in South Africa really throughout her career. And, you know, the works in in my book are this fantastic, intense series of self-portraits that she takes, but all of which are about an insistence on breaking down and looking beyond binaries of gender or sexuality and identity. And she talks about herself very much as an activist and uh, someone who is intent on breaking out of patriarchy, breaking out of gender normativity, all sorts of things. Um, But equally, other photographers in the book, Sabello Malangeni, who's another uh, South African photographer, who again has been documenting queer lives in South Africa and actually other places uh, for some time. And whose works I, I love because they have a, a tenderness and an intimacy and an openness to them that belies the conditions really of risk and hostility that, that, that queer people can live with and often do live with in, in some parts of countries like South Africa. But equally, someone like Hassan Hajaj. Uh, Hassan, great uh, British Moroccan photographer who has this kind of bravura, high colour, high intensity way of capturing North African uh, Muslim identity in Morocco, but also African identity, uh, in fact, much more globally than that, and whose work insists on Africanness as an innately cosmopolitan condition, as a condition that takes in references from the West to do with fashion, to do with popular imagery all around, and understands those and articulates those in ways that make absolute sense for him as someone who's born in Morocco, as someone who travels internationally. And like I said, reminds us, I think, that Africa doesn't exist somehow over there, out of reach, outside time, but has always been part of a global conversation about who we are and about how we live. Uh, so, yeah, so the section, I think, time and again, is looking at how different photographers really just grapple with how you articulate selfhood, how you articulate identity, and the different ways that, that people fight quite hard to do that in different parts of the world and different parts of Africa.
1: It really is such a fantastic book that really provides a kaleidoscopic impression of the territory and kind of the multiple ways it can be read. I just I can't recommend it enough. You're listening to The Messy Truth, conversations on photography. I would really love to talk a little bit about masculinity show at the Barbican mm, which you helped up. curate and you also um wrote about because mm. I felt that um that show was so disarming in so many ways and so complex um mm. it's one of the strongest shows I feel like I've seen in years and I wondered if you could talk a little bit about your process of being involved in that and how you worked with uh the Barbican curator Alona to kind of create the show
0: I really like the idea of it as a show because I think our I start point with it was really the idea that or not the idea I, I I call it a fact really that that masculinity is not a fixed proposition that being a man is it's a, it's a pretty complicated thing. I think the governing premise or one of the governing premises for the show is that masculinity in general has been queered that it's hard to look at men right now without doing so through the gaze of some of the scholarship or even some of the visual imagery that that queer thinkers and and artists have evolved and brought into the mainstream in the same way that we can't think about masculinity without thinking about it through the framework of feminism too. And when we do that, we recognise masculinity as a site of challenge and of contradiction and of constraint as something that is socially constructed rather than authentic and innate and something therefore that's ripe for interrogation and exploration more now than at any other point so you know the that Barbican show has got what more than 50 photographers in it and each of them has got this fantastic take of what it means and what it looks like to be a man
1: I feel like that really speaks to this idea about thinking about the medium as well as the message of that show. And and kind of actually to speak to, you know, your book that you were talking about earlier and how photography became this tool to reinforce and kind of the vision and values of colonialism and kind of the Western imagination. In some ways, the dynamic between photography in the masculinity show, you know, photography is, has been long the tool of kind of, patriarchy and and a way of excluding and a way of creating erasure and that dynamic I think is really interesting as well this idea of like it's not just the message it's what the media you know the mediums sort yeah. of lineage through that story is quite fascinating
0: yeah, yeah yeah that's completely true that's completely true you know who said photography is neutral who said photography is objective you know I really love let's say Sonor Gupta's work in that show I really love the way he understands that if you're exploring queer identity in India then it, as he was in the 1970s and 1980s well the 1980s then it's a really delicate difficult task so we see these photos that that he takes in, in different well actually in fact the son of Gupta works contrasts uh, photos that he takes of of gay men walking down Christopher Street in Greenwich Village, holding hands, feeling very open in the 70s and the 80s, and then contrast that with some of the imagery that he takes in India, where people have their backs turned to the camera, where people are for, you know, very obvious reasons, much less open in their sexuality. The photos in both, in both those places and the other places where he takes them are all beautiful. They're all fantastically composed, they're all beautiful, sensitive portraits. But you also see there limits of openness, but also uh recognition, as you're saying, Jim, about the role of the camera itself as a device of liberation to some extent, but also a device potentially of oppression in that it can expose the private lives of different people. The camera is a as a also an ally in concealment as an ally in privacy as an ally in the process and the enabling of becoming of people who otherwise have no way of articulating or expressing very openly their own sexuality so yeah you're right in so many ways that show is about medium is about the nature of being photographed and taking photographs as much as what the photograph itself is
1: Mm. That's why I think the title is so great. I think the title is really powerful because it's it's operating on so many levels.
0: It comes down to masculinities in the plural. Uh, mm. Because that is who we as men are rather than masculine, rather than man. Each of us holds contradiction in place and on a social level as a social invention the myth is that there's a singular form as opposed to a plural condition.
1: And I'd love to talk a little bit about your, your sort of wider practice and, and thinking about, you've obviously achieved so much already. I'm curious kind of how you stay motivated and how you keep pushing your work forward.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm very wary of... Looking back, it seems to me that most of what I do, I don't necessarily feel happy about where I get to with most things. I, th- I think most of what I'm trying to do is, is a is a struggle to get better at something or to get to a point I didn't think I necessarily achieved in a given project. Like it seems to me that that I'm interested in. And there's a lot I'm interested in exploring, and I'm sort of haunted. By the fact that I can write something and it doesn't really say all the things I want it to say so I keep trying and I keep trying to get to some of the places inside my head I mean in the end I'm probably orbiting around a a certain number of topics or a certain number of ideas that I return to around identity around race around masculinity even and I guess I'm trying to refine those ideas I'm trying to refine my relationship to those ideas and I'm not convinced I've got it right in any given thing and that's what keeps me going because hopefully the next project you get closer to that in some way and that's you know um and I'm yeah I'm slightly allergic to think I don't know you know what's it mean to say you've done something I mean it's all fine but the interesting thing is what you haven't done the interesting Mm. thing is what you're trying to do and that's what keeps me awake at night it's what gets me up in the morning this idea that well actually yeah you can think about this and put it together with that write that and it seems to me there's a lot potentially you can do for sure
1: I think also it's this idea that nothing's fixed as well right you can gather all these thoughts and, and be thinking about things for such a long period of time but then you know, a year, it doesn't even have to be something as significant as this, but the, a year like 2020 happens and shifts absolutely everything and recalibrates, you know, is still recalibrating how we think and feel about so many different things. And so that sort of pushes the work forward. So I feel like it's, I am taking great solace in hearing you say this, because it's something that I deal with all the time. And, and as somebody I look up to, that means a lot to me hearing, hearing you talk about it as well. But you're just constantly on this chase, as you say, to... Better articulate the ideas that you're passionate about and the stories that you're trying to tell.
0: Yeah. I mean, look, it's a sort of gem, look, it's a sort of horror story, isn't it? This idea that <laughs> the, well, this idea that you'd arrive, like what what would yeah. that be? Where would that place be? What would it involve? If you felt like, okay, yeah, I really nailed it. Well, yeah, that seems to me the just the worst position possible. Yeah. You don't get to perfectibility. Potentially. And I love, look, I should say also, like this whole series, this whole podcast series you've been doing, I think is so brilliant because this thing of having conversations and having a whole long succession of conversations, I think, for me, really just underscores this point that, yeah, you know, there's no peak, you know? Yes.
1: Yeah.
0: It's ongoing. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
1: Do you feel like there's anything you've had to unlearn along the way through your career so far? Ooh,
0: that's interesting. I think, well, okay, yeah, okay. I think one of the main things is that, you know, I'm sort of curious about a fair number of things. Uh, There's lots of things that I think are possible to do. And I think over time, I've I've probably, probably spent too much time being distracted by things that are interesting like I try and remind myself and it's a bit of a struggle I try and remind myself that because something is interesting is not enough of a reason to do it because it's merely interesting is not enough it has to run deeper there has to be more of a reason for me to be involved in something otherwise even if I can do it even if it's intellectually or aesthetically satisfying, I could be doing something else with my time that would ultimately matter more to me. So actually, yeah, if there's one thing I'm having to remind myself, it's um, the struggle is really to stay focused.
1: To finish up, I wanted to ask you the question that I asked everybody at the end of the episode. And that is what is more important to you, the process of making the work or its final manifestation?
0: Ooh, yeah, I mean, well, look, they're, they're sort of unbalanced because, you know, you you can do an exhibition and it can be up for three months or whatever, but the process has taken three years. Um, so yeah. in that respect, I'd have to say the process is the sustaining thing for me because the process is all about, it's all about the thinking and the emotional engagement with the work you know, making a finished version of something, a book or an exhibition is great, but that comes at the end of this long journey, this long, I mean, this long set of questions and searching that you have to do. And that's, the I think the meaning is in that search. You don't get, you know, you try and frame the answer within the within the the realization of the project, but you don't necessarily get everything right at the end, but you also don't stop thinking. And I think for me, the whole point is to keep exploring is to keep trying to make connections between things, because, yeah, they'll find their way out into a into a show or a book. At one point and then you keep going for sure
1: well thank you so much for your time it's so great to speak to you echo
0: jem look it's such a pleasure
1: thanks for listening to the messy truth you can find more information about today's guests in the show notes theme music is changed by jud greenstein from the album awake and design is by ruby white You can follow updates on the podcast on my Instagram at jemfletcher or subscribe to my newsletter at jemfletcher.com. Feel free to leave a review on Apple Podcasts.